0: Welcome back to the God's Story podcast, calling us back to the gospel and to the word of God. Last time we had marvelous discussion with uh, Louis Marcos uh, about uh, God's story in the great uh, old creation pagan cultures. And um, uh, we were talking about uh, what were we talking about, Louis? Greek and Roman myth, and uh, Orpheus, yes. and the house of Atreus, and uh, fun, fun Greek tragedy.
1: I love Greek tragedy. Good stuff. Very yeah. cheery.
0: Yeah. And God gave those writers and storytellers some insight into the truth, general revelation rather than special revelation, of course. So they didn't go all the way. The gospel revealed it. But today we're talking about the second of Lewis's new books. This one published by IVP in America, InterVarsity Press. And it's called From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Shaped Christian faith. So today we're on about Plato. Last time we were talking about Aeschylus and the and the great Greek myths, but it's Plato's tento, into diving into the Greek philosophy, Lewis. How were these great Greek and Roman writers like Plato inspired with some insight into the truth, do you think?
1: It's great. Now, it's interesting that we're doing these two books so closely, because about, I guess it's been about 12 years ago, I published a book called from Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Be the Pagan Classics. Yep. And in a sense, the book we're talking about today, From Plato to Christ, and the one we talked about earlier, uh, The Myth-Made Fact, they're both sort of extensions of that. Let, let's take this basic thesis that Christ is the myth-made fact and extend it. So, And in fact, if you go back and read my book, From Achilles to Christ, I mention there that I'm not going to mention Plato in this book because he really needs his own book. And it took me another decade, but I finally wrote that book. And so we're moving from, if you will, literature and myth to philosophy. And Plato is the great philosopher. Plato and Aristotle, they sort of separate the world between them. And Plato it, okay, Plato not only is filled with intimations of Christianity, he did have a profound impact on the early church. And I want to argue right now, an impact for good. Let me just step back here and say why I'm very passionate about this book. Not only because, again, it's part of my whole thesis of God preparing the pagan world for the coming of Christ. But you know, Brent, you'll probably remember uh, 20, 30 years ago, if you were a liberal Christian and there was something in the Bible that you didn't like, it offended your sensibility. The way you did away with it was by saying, well, that's St. Paul." I only care about the words in red. You know those people, they're still around. Oh, yes. I would argue, and it really bothers me, that today a lot of what do you want to call them? Neo Orthodox, neoliberal. These are people who would claim to be evangelical believers, but there's still things they don't like in Christianity. And so they now blame it on Plato. They're not going to blame it on Paul and more of a, oh, it's Plato, it's Plato, it's Plato. Plato had some problems, but he was. I believe, used by God to prepare the pagan world. Certainly the early church fathers believed it. They had no problem using words like Logos and Theos and Psyche, words that are very central to Plato, the idea of the soul, the struggle of the soul. They saw real truth in Plato. Now, well, logos, is certain, using
0: John right? logos is used yeah, in right,
1: John 1. Yeah, right there, John 1. I mean, he, he understood that. That, you know, that, that as even your own poets have said, that's what Paul says at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, even your own poets have seen these things. Let's build a bridge between the two. But again, we're getting more and more people that don't like anything that's got to do with hierarchy or difference or essentialism or any of this sort of stuff or or forms and, you know, the, the growth of relativism in our world is, you know, Plato is the great stay against relative. We need to understand all of this stuff we're seeing with a rampant relativism, with materialism, I mean I mean philosophical materialism, all that sort of stuff, all that stuff was going on with the sophists, okay, in, you know, yeah. 2,500, 2,600 years ago. Thank God, God rose up Plato to stamp them out, and then along comes the Bible, and and basically, Plato did such a good job wrestling these, these uh, crazy relativists to the ground that they stayed low until a couple hundred years ago, until the
0: Enlightenment. Socrates would have had a great time with today's
1: relativists, wouldn't he? Oh, man, he would, he would have just taken them down. It would wonderful. We, we need this again. Yeah. Right? They, they're punchy people. So they were used very powerfully uh, to stop this. And, and, you know, once again, in, in, in the Middle Ages, there was a big rise in what's called nominalism. Nominalism means that the words we use are only names. We use words, beauty, truth, goodness, but there's nothing behind There's no absolute. Postmodernism. That's like postmodernism. Yeah. yeah, that's postmodernism. And that broke up in the middle. I wrote, I wrote another book, uh, Brent, called Atheism on Trial, in which I showed that all the arguments that new atheists have been using for the last 20 years, they've all been around for thousands of years and they've all been answered for thousands of years. They just keep creeping up their ugly head, right? In the Middle Ages, it was a group of people called the Realists, very platonic, who said no, right? Now, we're lucky because Augustine made the important move. Okay, most people know that Plato had a theory of forms, that behind the words and things of our world are absolute ideas or forms of truth. So we recognize every, You know, there are all different kinds of chairs, different colors, different shapes, different textures, different sizes, but we all recognize them as a chair because they all participate in the idea or form of chair, chair with a capital C, chairness. And that's also true, by the way, for masculinity and femininity. That's why people don't like Plato. Um, they, They are real, true things, right? Now, of course, for Plato, they were just sort of impersonal ideas. What Augustine did to make it all work is he took the forms of Plato and put them in the mind of God, because that's where they are. They are in the thoughts of God, right? So I don't believe in literal forms that are impersonal things, but, but again, those forms are the ideas of God. And always, again and again, there are forces that wanna break from any idea that there are absolute transcendent truths that are above us and outside of us, right? Mm. We wanna be the ones that call the shots. We wanna say that our words are just named, that everything's slippery, you can go back and forth. There is no meaning. Postmodernism, postmodernism is not new. It's as old as the sophists. It's as old as the Gnostics. It's as old as the, the novelists. They've been around forever and we need to fight them. And Plato is one of the people that helps us To fight and preserve the the truth of Christ, the the, the, the touchstone, so that everything doesn't just become soup. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we better uh, go back and and, and can you tell us who was Plato and who was Socrates? Okay. Now, it starts with Socrates. Socrates uh, is living in the 5th century. Uh, He died. He he was executed in 399 BC. So he was probably born about 470. He He is...
0: He was deep. he
1: was deep? That's right. He was deep platform. That's right. That's right. He was cancelled. Deep Yeah, he was quite canceled. literally cancelled. <laughs> Actually, you're right. He was cancelled. Uh, the, the 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 gadfly was squatted, corrupting the youth. Trying to do to us.
0: For corrupt. That's right. Nothing. Yeah.
1: By the way, I I just found out on Facebook that apparently Rand Paul, he's a famous uh, what do you call this? Uh, yes, I know Rand Paul, uh, libertarian in yeah. yeah, yeah. uh, in America, was was just cancelled. Yep. was knocked yes. off of Facebook or something. I'm not surprised. It's crazy. My, my good friend, uh, Eric Metaxas, who speaks the truth no matter what the cost, he he's been completely knocked off of YouTube. It's unbelievable. He
0: wrote a fantastic biography of Bonhoeffer.
1: Do oh, it's know? really good. He, he followed up with the one of Luther too. And, you know, oh, yeah. all the stuff we're seeing, Bonhoeffer saw it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yep. But he's, he's a fellow Greek, too, Eric Metaxas. But, the, um, but, but yes, he, Socrates was quite literally cancelled. What Socrates did is he forced people to dialogue. So what he would do is he would ask somebody, what is truth? And they would give their definition. And it was a man-made truth, truth with a little t. And what Plato, through a series of question and answer, he would explode that and show that, no, that's just man-made. Now, if that's all he did, we would think he was a postmodernist, but no, he is not deconstructing false definitions of truth as an end in itself to show us that truth is completely relative. He is trying to wipe, board the, wipe clean the board because I can't see truth with a capital T because my eyes are impeded by a bunch of little t truth that are stopping me from seeing it. So Socrates' job was to come along and wipe the slate clean. Now, Socrates is often very annoying. Because then when you ask him, what do you think truth is? Well, I don't know, okay? Because his job was just to prepare the ground. That's why, thank God, Plato, Socrates was followed by his star student, Plato, who would go on to figure out the real definitions, I love well, we story. don't do it. We need Plato to clear the ground. Yeah, I love Socrates the story. The I love ground. the
0: story. I can't remember which, which one it's in, but uh, someone's talking about Socrates and they said, Well, they they saw him in their back garden and he was just standing there. And uh, someone went up to him and said, Am I right remembering this or misremembering this? And said, What are you doing? And he said, I'm just thinking. You know, so yeah, he right, yes. made his way into someone's garden and he was just standing, <laughs>
1: standing sort of. He was amazing. Socrates claimed that he had what he called an oracle, a little voice, and it would never quite tell him what to do, but it would stop him from doing something wrong. And sometimes he would just stop like that. And that's why, you know, even though the apology he gave was really rather unsuccessful because it led to him being killed. At the end of his speech, he says to the, the people that acquitted him, I have good news for you. All during my trial and my apology, my defense, never once did my oracle try to stop me and that must mean that death is not necessarily an evil thing um, because we will all end up at the white shores of new zealand and see the green country under a swift sunrise so we'll see i'll get there one of these days i'll get there one of these days Oh, be, be great see to, the shire
0: yeah be great be great to have you it's a beautiful country you'll
1: you'll love it you'll love it it's got everything it, it's everything, but, but so, so, so yeah, so Socrates, again, he, he, he went part of the way. And when you read the early dialogues of Plato, I believe that the early dialogues of Plato are pretty much pure Socrates because they almost always end with what's called an impasse. So the Greek word is aporia or aporia, uh, a sort of, you, you, you don't know where to go because we haven't been able to keep, we, we, we've only done the first stage. But that's why Plato is so important. It is great middle dialogues in the Republic, in the Phaedrus, in the Phaedo, in the Timaeus, in the the Gorgias, all of these great, great dial of symposium. We are now starting to build philosophy. And what Socrates and Plato did to create real philosophy is they brought together metaphysics and ethics, and the two need to come together right? Because as C.S. Lewis would say, there are plenty of ethical people like uh, Buddhists who are not actually religious, right? Uh, A lot of the secular humanists are sometimes ethical. John Stuart Mill was very ethical, but he was not religious. On the other hand, you will meet people that are very, very religious, like pagans, who are also doing sacrifices and orgiastic rituals. So they don't necessarily go together, but we are bringing together ethics and metaphysics And we're really creating a true philosophy where the truth is the truth, but it also should impact our beliefs and our behaviors. The two need to go together. So the same God, again, this is sort of C.S. Lewis, the same God who thunders on the top of Mount Sinai and makes your knees shake is the same one who gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. So the two come together like that. Mm. Did Plato believe in God? I think it's very clear. Now, people debate, should we be using the capital G? It's not so much that he's necessarily giving us, you know, Yahweh or Jehovah in Greek dress, but he is clearly moving towards a kind of monotheism because he's realized that the Greek gods of Homer, no no matter how much he loved Homer and most of it memorized, if that's God, we're in trouble, okay? If there is a God, he must be the standard. Of goodness and truth and beauty and justice. And so in that sense, I think it's legitimate in many of his middle dialogues to use the capital G, because we're finally understanding that there must be a god who is outside and not compromised by our, you know, vicious behavior as the gods of Homer and Hesiod are.
0: Greek gods were, were dysfunctional, to say the least, weren't they?
1: Oh, they were very dysfunctional. They were just, you know, big children. They're, they're basically Hollywood stars, okay? They're celebrities who, they're, or even better, they're those those diplomats who have, what do they call that, diplomatic immunity? You yeah. know, the the, the, the the guy comes over from the Middle East and he's not bad, but his kids think they have diplomatic immunity. They think it's sleep and drink, and get drunk no matter what they want to do and they'll never get in trouble. That's what the gods are like uh, in Greek mythology. I mean, there is something deeper. I mean, you, you read the Greek, the Greek tragedies and things like that, and you will see intonations of, A kind of deeper divine truth but it's really in the philosophers it's really in socrates and especially plato and aristotle and then later in cicero in rome that we're starting to really see that god if there is a god he must be good and a standard that's not compromised by human depravity do plato's writings point to christ i believe they do in many different ways first of all this is amazing okay the Republic, okay, uh, there are only two books by Plato that are so long that they are broken into chapters. And that is The Republic, it has 10 chapters. And l- later on, he wrote a book called The Laws that also has many chapters. All the other ones, like the Gorgias and the Symposium and the Phedra, are short enough that there's no chapters, right? But The Republic is the longest of the middle dialogues and it's broken into 10 chapters. And it's all about a simple question what is justice, right? And in the beginning, it sounds like pure Socrates because one person says, justice means doing good to your friends and evil to your enemies. And through a process of Socratic dialogue back and forth, uh, he explodes that. Then along comes Thrasymachus, the Machiavelli of the ancient world. And he says, justice is basically might makes right. It's the will of the stronger. And, and uh, again, Socrates unpacks that. But then there's almost an impasse. And then it's like, wait, We need to go farther along, right? And so one of his pupils, Glaucon, speaks up and says, Plato, you've got to or Socrates, but it is Plato. Socrates, you need to do a better job defending justice. And so I'm going to play devil's advocate and force you to really defend justice as an intrinsic good. (laughs) And so we end up with two scenarios, right? And this is what it is. There are two men. One is the purely unjust man, and the other is the purely just man. Now, the purely unjust man is unjust, but he knows how to present himself as just. And so he is hailed by everyone while being completely unjust in his soul. But the purely just man, what will happen to him? He will be purely judged, just. But people will turn against him. He will be slandered. He will be imprisoned. Ah. He will be beaten and scourged, mm. and finally he will be impaled upon a spike. Sounds familiar. This, Sounds very familiar. yes, this reads like now when Plato wrote this, he probably had Socrates in mind, right? Because by then his, his, his beloved master had been put to death by hemlock. But what is this if not an intimation? of the purely just man. We also see an intimation of Christ in the famous uh, allegory of the cave. Many people know it. He imagines the the state of man is that we are locked inside of a cave. We are chained to chairs and we are facing the back wall of the cave. that's all we can see. But behind us, behind our backs, is a raging fire. And in between the fire and us are these puppeteers. And they are playing with puppets. And the shadows of the puppets are cast by the fire onto the cave world, cave wall. And all our life, we think that's reality. It is actually the shadow of a shadow, the imitation of an imitation of reality. For the shadows are an imitation of the puppets or an, are an imitation of the real things outside of the cave. And that is the state of man. But one of them, the philosopher breaks free from his bones and turns and sees the fire. At first he's blinded, but slowly he realizes his condition and he makes his way out of the cave to see the real things that are out there. Now, that is a metaphor, an allegory for helping us to understand the nature of the forms. But then he says that that philosopher cannot stay out there and enjoy the truth of the real world. He must go back in to the cave and try to wake them up. To the true nature of their condition. But what will they do? They will shut him up. And beat him. And scourge him. And kill him. Right? Jesus did not have to come into. You know we always focus on the crucifixion. As the greatest sacrifice. The incarnation was a sacrifice. Jesus left equality with God. In the trinity. Second person of the Godhead. He left that to come into our world of shadows. Our postmodern uh, what, what, what uh, barth call it the uh the, the play the playhouse of signifiers always words the, that the deconstruction is used he came into that world right a world of darkness and illusion and whatnot uh and he was in fact killed and put to death uh it, it, it's amazing we understand what what happens to the truth teller how he is shut up and eventually killed and all of these things are are, are, are amazing and so they they but, but for Plato, it's not just these glimpses of Christ. It's, it's a glimpse of the true Christian life. Now, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. But God needs salvation and grace to be the beginning of a journey. right? As we are moving more and more towards Christ, towards the truth, towards what Plato called the beatific vision, the blessed vision that was adopted by the Middle Ages. Uh, and still comes up in great writers like uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar and things like that. And now Plato, a beatific vision, meant you know actually me- meditating upon the forms. But the wonderful thing is our beatific vision is not going to be meditation upon ultimately impersonal forms, but it will be a participation in the triune life of the Godhead. Wow. But Plato is a way who encourages us to ascend. The rising path to grow and to, to, to again, that, that it's a journey that the soul is struggling and moving closer and closer to God's truth. And so it's dynamic and it's something that we need to hear today, especially those of us who are evangelicals that might be tempted to say, Well, I'm saved, so whatever, I'll just do what I want to do. It's like, No, 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 that, that's that's not the way it works. Okay, we are we are saved in order to grow towards Christ. And I think Plato was a great instigator and and, and, uh, uh, encourager to move forward in in things like the spiritual disciplines, which have come back with the Renovari movement in Dallas, Willard, if you're familiar with all those folks that are encouraging, again, a return to spiritual disciplines.
0: Plato has a lot to teach us about the education system too. Some would say not all of it positive, but... uh, what (laughs) what's your view of again that? you know
1: plato gets a bad rap it's like ah oh, plato is the great uh you know censor okay? not really if you look at what he's censoring okay it would be like well it would be closer to do you know that in the book of acts a group of christians get together and burn books what they're not burning copies of you know homer and plato they're burning books of spells actual books of demonic spells, okay? Now, what Plato is saying is, and and a lot of times he's talking about children rather than adults now. We need to be careful not to give children stories about the gods that will teach them that the gods are no better than fallen human beings and are terrible role models. This is what he's talking about. Uh, You know, age-appropriate kinds of things. But like I said, Plato loved Homer. You know how you know that? When you read Plato and he quotes Homer, he makes a lot of little errors. He makes a lot of little errors because he's always quoting from memory. He's got he's got it memorized. I'm sure it was written down by then. Some people think it wasn't written until later, but I think it was clearly written by the time Plato's written down, the the Odyssey. But it doesn't make a difference. He's clearly doing it from memory because he's absorbed it. Right? So he's teaching us what we should know. Well, you know, there are certain things that our kids should not see, right? We, we need to be careful. And it's not just the the four-letter words, right? There are a lot of things that I wouldn't let my kids see even if it was edited for television, right? I would not let them see the the silence of the lambs even if it was edited for television, okay? I'm not going to give them the the, the mind of of a maniac, okay? I'm going to give them affirming things. Later on, they will have to struggle with these things. Well, it's probably better if nobody sees that movie. But later on, they will struggle with real evil in the world it can't be hidden from that but you know in education there are the age appropriate things uh so and i I should mention too that the republic is not really a book about making a city okay okay the whole point is we want socrates to explain what justice is in the soul But you can't see or smell or taste or touch the soul. So how are you going to understand justice in the soul? What he decides to do is let's take the microcosm of the soul and expand it onto the macrocosm of a state. Let's build a perfect state and then we can work our way back to the soul. That's what it's all about. But once he starts building a city, he gets carried away. His pupils start pushing him to talk about different things and we get all off sidetrack and things like that. But ultimately, it's about them. Yes, the, 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 the it is. There's a little bit of what we would call the caste system in India there because we've got classes, but those classes are less like India and the caste system and more like the Middle Ages when you had those who fought and those who ruled and those who prayed, those who worked. I mean, it, it is more that kind of a traditional society. And by the way, Plato may seem like a never never The republic, but it actually was the Middle Ages because, look, yes, there was a uh, what do you call it a, a, a holy roman emperor but the real leaders of society in the middle ages were the priests and the bishops and the monks in other words philosopher kings, philosopher kings they yes. devoted much of their life to contemplation mm-hmm. right and i mean so in many ways the republic was lived out in christendom in the middle ages uh and and uh, and, and that's how it worked right and you know i, I i'm glad uh that you know we live in a modern place, and I certainly believe that pastors can be married, but we need to understand that in the Middle Ages, if you were a priest, you kind of almost couldn't be married because how could you support a wife and kids, right? The only, the only reason why preachers and also professors, the only reason people like that can support a family is because of capitalism, okay? It's because we have a system that allows for that. In the old days, you couldn't, right? I mean, the so is the church going to take care of every priest and his wife and all their children and grandchildren? I mean, you know, I, you know I, I'm glad we moved away from the celibacy of the priesthood. But I understand why, you know, again, we, we needed a different culture to allow for that. Even then, uh, for a long time, all the, the, the teachers and professors in uh, Oxford and Cambridge were celibate. And even when they allowed them to marry, a lot of them lived home on the weekend and actually lived like a bachelor in their, you know, rooms, rooms in Magdalene College or whatever college it was. And it might've been that way, probably in Australia and New Zealand in the past as well, under the British form of education. And then it slowly changed, okay? So, uh, but, but again, a, a lot of this stuff comes out of Plato. Just the idea that there are things that are closer to goodness, truth and beauty than other. We, we don't like that as modern people. We want to flatten everything out, create a lowest common denominator world. That's the horror of communism. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't raise everybody up to equity. It tears everybody down to mediocrity. Yep. And that's a danger, real danger. That's right.
0: Well, how then does uh, Plato really point towards the Lord Jesus Christ? What can
1: we learn from his works? What, what we can learn is, see, here's the crazy thing, okay? Lewis said our world is a shadow. Man. Okay, now it's not literally shadows, okay? Our world is real and God called it good. Uh, what we can learn, and we learned this from C.S. Lewis, but he gets it by way of Plato, is that God and heaven are more than the earth, not less than. It's not that I'm corporeal and God is non corporeal. If anything, God is transcorporeal. God is not impersonal, God is transpersonal. Have you had an influence of uh, N.T. Wright down there in New Zealand? Uh, and, uh, and T Ray, he's. Oh, you NT know, yes,
0: yes, yes yes. The, the, Wright. Yeah. yes, 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 yes.
1: Yeah, it's important because he's reminding people that heaven will be a physical place. Mm. Heaven is not flitting around on clouds, right? And apparently, uh, as bad as it is in America, it's even worse in that people think we die, and we become angels and flitter. Around. No, heaven mm-hmm. is going to be an actual physical place that is more real and more actual and in a way more physical than the earth is. Plato's reminding us of that. You know, Plato gets a bad rap. Okay, in one sense, it's true that he looked down on the body. But really, this idea that the body is inherently evil is not in Plato's dialogues. It's in Neoplatonism. It's in uh, Plotinus. It's in the Gnostics of the early church. And remember, a lot of times when Plato is being attacked, it's not Plato, but the Neoplatonists that are being attacked. Go back and read. Thank God, you know, for a long time in the Middle Ages, the Latin Middle Ages, um, the only thing they had of Plato was the Timaeus. Everything else had been lost. I mean, they got it through Boethius. They got it through Virgil. They got it through Cicero. Uh, but Plato itself was lost because the Greek language was almost lost in the West. It was there in Byzantium, of course. Uh, and it's interesting that of all the books that were preserved, it was the Timaeus. The Timaeus is, is Plato's creation story. And it's the only book in the ancient world that comes within a million miles of creation ex nihilo, creation of nothing. In Homer and Hesiod and Cicero and every mythology, in the beginning is matter and the gods come out of matter. In Timaeus, we have almost an intimation of a god who seems to predate the earth and matter, who shapes it. And if you read the Timaeus, its vision of the body is not completely negative. The soul is still to be privileged. Plato cannot know of this incarnational idea that we are in flesh souls, that we are fully physical and fully spiritual. But hey, wake up. How many people who call themselves Christians think that we're souls trapped in bodies and that the soul is good and the body's bad? That's still with us, okay? Uh, It's called dualism uh, is is usually the word that's used for it. Um, And actually, Plato, he's not as bad as we sometimes think the worst thing in Plato's when he starts talking about the community of women, never everybody together. And that's something that the progressives would love. So, you know, it's, 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 kind of crazy, you know, um, there were, but again, yes, compared to Christianity, he does have a low view of the body because he doesn't have Genesis. He doesn't know that God created man and called it good and that we are in flesh souls. That that's something that needs special revelation. Um, And, and yet it was accommodated to him. Uh, And, and again, so many of the early church fathers, East and West were influenced by him. C.S. Lewis himself was influenced by him. And, and, and we, 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 you know, hold him at arm's length at our peril because he can help keep us on track in the spiritual journey and help remind us that there are truths, there are standards. Hey, how many uh, you know, good, good Christians you know who said, oh yes, there's absolute truth and absolute goodness, but no, there's no absolute beauty. is all relative. Well, once you kill beauty, you kill truth and goodness. That's what we're moving towards. Anything goes. Uh, there are no standards and people get angry when you try to impose any kind of standard. Uh, Plato reminds us that again, absolute truth exists. Nietzsche was wrong. Okay? absolute truth because what Nietzsche said God is dead he mean, he meant everything spiritual is dead mm-hmm. everything with a capital letter is basically yeah. dead yeah. Nietzsche. and we're fighting to get it back and I think Plato is much more of an ally than a foe mm. in that fight
0: well Lewis we've got to wrap up uh wonderful to talk to you yet again uh Lewis Marcos professor of English at Houston baptist university in texas the great state of texas hey. where he, yay where he holds the robert h ray chair in humanities and his uh, second the second of his uh, two new books published by ivp in america is called from plato to christ how platonic thought shaped the christian faith lewis as always sir uh, it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for your time thanks talk. for
1: having me on go plato that's okay, <laughs> okay plato.